I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome one of my favorite guests during the 2020 presidential campaign cycle, Mike Madrid. He is co-founder of The Lincoln Project. Hey, Mike. Great to be with you. Always a good discussion. Mike, how would you assess the first days or week of the Democratic majority and how it's performed Well, it's really early to kind of speculate as to what 2022 is going to look like, but I think there are a number of tectonic plates out there that you can kind of look at and see what's going to start to set the narrative. Uh, The first really deals with kind of the Republican Party uh, as it continues to factionalize and try to wrestle with the idea of whether it needs to defend itself or go on the offense as it relates to Trump and Trumpism and what that brand is going to mean. I think the Democratic majority in both houses uh, is going to continue to prosecute the case, like literally and figuratively. And I think that even though the, those majorities are smaller than they have been in probably 50 years in both houses, um, there's a huge opportunity to, I think, use the wind in their sails to kind of start driving what the new narrative is going to be like. It is also, Alex, very extraordinary to have so much work to be done in such a quick time frame because the economy's obviously not very healthy. Our uh, people are not healthy with the COVID situation our um, our image internationally has been wrecked or damaged, and there's just an extraordinary amount of, of of work of rebuilding the government, the bureaucracies, and the leadership in those departments that have been depleted over the past four years. The restoration of democracy at home, besides defeating Trumpism, and maybe that is the task at hand. What steps do you think the Biden administration need to take to? restore our democracy, renew our democracy, you know, or or is it really about extinguishing all the influences of Trumpism? That's a really great question. And I think the answer lies in saying that it's kind of both of those. You're going to have to do a lot. I think what we realized over the course of the past four years is there were a lot of cracks in our institutions that were able to be exploited. It's kind of like having a beautiful luxury home, buying it, moving in, and then realizing that uh, the wood rot has kind of consumed all of it. And in many ways, the luxury of having lived in the healthiest, longest existing democracy on the planet has made us a little bit complacent about some of the domestic challenges in our own institutions that we were not able to see until somebody really attacked them. So the way that I would approach it is to, um, first and foremost, work to restore confidence in the institution of government to the greatest extent that you can, a very tall order given Uh, The fact that most Americans don't have much confidence in any institutions, let alone government, and they've seen it tattered uh, over the course of the past four years. But there's also going to have to be a lot of work done on expanding the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Republicans are already working in state legislatures to limit the franchise, to to find ways to exclude more people from voting. There's going to have to be um, something done about uh, misinformation and, and some sort of regulatory framework for social media platforms where Uh, We've always, as Americans, believed that more speech was uh, inherently a good, the way you got rid of hate speech, the way you got rid of of bad players in the free speech space was by shining a a bigger light and giving it more more voice so that people could isolate it and ostracize it and denounce it. That's really not possible in the internet age. So we're going to have to begin a really deep-seated, earnest discussion about what we can do as as a people and what our government can do to, to set a regulatory framework that allows for the free flow of information, but is able to identify and extricate
educate, limit, and really get rid of, of, of the movement of misinformation, just outright lies that are designed to disrupt our society and government. Uh, beyond that, I think even simple things like immigration reform, something that you and I have talked about over the past few months and I've been working on for the past three decades, really reinvigorates the American spirit, the American psyche, and, and changes forever who we are going forward. That's a threat to some. I think it's the promise of America, and I think it reinvigorates America uh, socially, and that has has um, an impact on our democratic institutions moving forward. So very big agenda to kind of start the repair work. Just take it back to that metaphor of a house. Um, you've got to begin at the foundation. You've got to start at the bottom, and you've got to start repairing every little piece. Otherwise, um, you're only as strong as, as the weakest link. Mike, how much of that depends on persuading the Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinsinger's of the world, not just in the criminality of Donald Trump and to vote to impeach and then convict Trump, but to con- convince them to be on the side of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, with, with the filibuster intact and Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema's commitment to preserving it, uh, they're going to have to get some Republicans in both chambers uh, to if not caucus with them to support some of the institutional democratic revitalization, immigration reform you mentioned. So how much of it do you think will require Republican support uh, of the old guard GOP? Um, And if that is not forthcoming, um, do the Democrats just say uh, when it comes to our democracy, you know, the same way the Republicans did with the tax legislation, we, if we're all in, we have to tackle this together. If it is our coalition alone and the majority coalition of this country, we will do so. Well, that's a good question. And I think the answer is, you know, from a mathematical perspective, there really doesn't need to be any bipartisan work done, even though there is a very significant uh, danger of losing even one or two votes from the Democratic side of the aisle. On things like this, though, things like the foundational reforms of government, I think that you will see a very united Democratic caucus. And where you don't, I think you only need just a small handful of Republicans in both the Senate and the House to move some of these efforts forward. And I think that those those small number of votes actually exist. Even if you just had those 10, 10 Republican members in the House that voted to impeach the president, that would make it not only give it the imprimatur of being bipartisan, but you would get past a majority uh, that you need to pass the legislation. And I think that there's actually a number of Republicans on both sides of the, of the, both in the House and in the Senate that want to move it in this type of a direction, that will not see this as some sort of a threat and provide the contrast necessary both um, in their own caucus, but also I think in demonstrating that bipartisanship is a, is a possibility on some foundational democratic principles. The devil, of course, Alex, is always in the details, but I think that the opportunity exists to have a handful of Republicans in both the House and in the Senate to get a deal done. And I think we're going to see that happen hopefully very soon. So you think that even if the American recovery legislation is a a single partisan venture uh, in that only Democrats vote for it, you think that some of these Republicans will still come to the table for you know, subsequent democratic initiatives. I do believe that. And I think it has a lot to do with the uniqueness of this moment in time and the challenges that the Republican caucuses uh, face. I think that there is an earnest desire that probably runs deeper than we're seeing publicly to move away from Trump and Trumpism. And I think if these measures are framed in that way, 
It will have the benefit of uniting the Democrats, uh, probably unanimously to move this legislation forward, but also peeling off again that handful of Republicans to say the country needs to head in a different direction. And I think that they'll get it done. Mike, one of the things that you and I talked about during the 2020 campaign was the Democratic Party's relationship with the Hispanic and and Latino community. And you warned the Democrats that they were not understanding uh, the sophistication of the Republican outreach, grassroots organizing, and even the appeal of Donald Trump on some level, the machismo and the human connection um, on the anti-socialist, anti-communist plank, specifically in Florida and in, in Texas, um, you know, you you saw in Miami, if we can start there, just a, a dismal performance by Joe Biden. I mean, it was it was just awful. Um, and what do you think in 2022 with uh, a Senate and gubernatorial race in the balance, uh, the Democrats can do to try to reset their Florida game? Well, the first thing they have to do is acknowledge that they have a problem, and they refused to do that in 2020, and they frankly refused to do it in 2016. And as somebody who was opposed to Donald Trump and the Republican nominee in both of those years, uh, you know that I was very public in saying, you guys, you're not doing the right things to get to the vote count that you need to win this state, being Florida, or make Texas a more competitive state. And unfortunately, I was right. Uh, you, some, you, you know, Usually you like to be right, but in this case, I I didn't. And it wasn't heeded by the Democrats. Uh, I'm not convinced that they've gotten that message as loud and clearly as they're going to need to. I think institutionally, Latino Democratic operatives and even um, the Democratic Party has a very different set of ideas of where they think the Latino community is heading and what public opinion polling and science and electoral results, results show us actually is happening. And what it really comes down to is the Democratic Party is going to have to recommit to working towards a policy agenda that works for blue-collar, non-college-educated immigrant or sons and daughters of immigrants economy uh, in this new economy, in this new age. The Democratic Party has done a really good job of consolidating uh, its policy prescriptions, specifically environmental issues and, frankly, attacks on manufacturing uh, industries um, in a way that has has allowed it to consolidate its base overwhelmingly with white college educated progressive voters um, they've relied on Republican racism uh, to try to get as much turnout from Latinos as possible I've been saying for many years that's not a long-term sustainable strategy and it's not and that 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 proved to be the case in 2020 so the answer really is, they're going to have to start flexing the wings of the FDR wing of the of the Democratic Party and make sure that they are um, moving beyond just kind of these platitudes of saying like a $15 minimum wage as a middle class strategy. And, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, um, criticizing the $15 minimum wage. That's not the point at all. What I'm saying is that $15 minimum wage is the centerpiece of a middle class economic policy. There's nobody who's making $15 an hour that is middle class. You have to have a seventy, eighty, hundred thousand dollar a year job to to make it work for a family of four or five, and that's really a real cohesive strategy for the Latino community specifically. And the Democratic Party does not exist, and I haven't really seen that from the Biden administration. And I'm I'm concerned because if they do not course correct on these policies prescriptions specifically, you will continue to see, especially amongst U.S. born Hispanic males, 
a movement towards Republican economic populism, and that could threaten the very small majority that Democrats have. Now, make no mistake, uh, you know, I'm not a Democrat, and I don't, I don't subscribe to a lot of part, uh, policies of the Democratic Party, but I am, I'm far more afraid of a resurgent Republican Party given its dictatorial nature and the strong and increasing tendency to undermine democracy. So um, there are policy answers that need to be addressed, and they are, they are institutional challenges that the Democratic Party faces. They've had a very difficult time in acknowledging them and recognizing them. Uh, in many ways, they treat Latino voters like black voters, just believing that they're going to get that vote regardless. And the data, the science, and electoral results are showing that that's not the case, and they're going to have to fix it, and they're going to have to fix it quick. So like with the gubernatorial contest of Kemp Abrams in Georgia prior to the 20 presidential and Senate races in Georgia, you've got a laboratory for democracy and for the Democrats to reset and retest with um, the gubernatorial and Senate races. So if you're Nikki Freed, the state agriculture commissioner, contemplating a run for governor or Senate uh, against DeSantis for governor or Rubio for Senate. What's the first thing you do? What would be that game plan? So there's two things you have to do to win the Latino vote in Florida. And the first you have to recognize is that there's a, there's a Miami Dade challenge, right? That, that for the first time in many, many decades, Donald Trump and the campaign in 2020 built a multi-generational coalition of uh, Cuban uh, Americans and dramatically, as you pointed out, right, uh, outperformed the voter model. And they did it basically on a message of socialism. Uh, the first is you're going to have to go in and, and build infrastructure. Uh, and I know that doesn't sound terribly sexy, but you're gonna, the, the handful of votes that you're going to move in Miami-Dade are going to be very consequential because, and this takes me to the second point, and this is perhaps the most important, you have to inspire and motivate Puerto Ricans specifically in the I-4 corridor. Okay, and the way you reach these voters is through an economic message. The Democrats have unfortunately focused largely again on kind of these platitude issues. Like if you read Joe Biden's 55 point uh, platform for the Latino community, it relies heavily on things like building a national Latino monument in the at the National Mall or setting up a blue ribbon commission for this or for that. That's not what's kind of, that's not what what Latinos are, are are losing sleep at night worrying about. They're they're waking up in the middle of the night worried about how they got to pay for rent, um, what what COVID is going to look like, and why they may or may not lose their job given the dynamics of the industries that we are overrepresented in. Um, and so, as a practical matter, I think the question kind of kind of begs sort of an easy answer, which is what are those policy issues that will get us there? And it's really a little bit more complicated than that. And then I'm speaking specifically about Florida. You have to dramatically overperform with Puerto Rican voters because there are just as many Puerto Rican voters in Florida as there are Cuban voters. And you can't lose the Cuban vote to the same degree that you did without also winning Puerto Rican voters by the similar margin and then allowing other ethnicities and other racial groups, which tends to break more democratic, come home for you. So and that's, I know that's a little bit in the weeds, Alex, but as a practitioner who does this for a living, that's strategically how I would be looking at this race. Now, we could talk a little bit more about getting into kind of countering the socialism argument and countering, countering some of those, uh, those effects from the, the Cuban-Miami-Dade uh, um, segment. But you have to remember, the Cuban-American vote is only 6% of the Latino vote in Florida. It's really not that big. It's hyper-concentrated and it overperforms for Republicans, but it can be easily out, um, outmatched by other Latino groups 
that are far, far more democratic if you have a compelling message that speaks to the economic concerns of these voters. That condemnation of Castro, communism, and socialism resonates with a percent of the population. Uh, How vehemently, how passionately your defense of capitalism uh, has to be, uh, how persuasive your condemnation of Castro, communism, and socialism the essential factor, but is, is it not the prerequisite? In other words, if, you know, Nikki Fried or Stephanie Murphy, Val Demings, Gwen Graham, you name the candidate, is running that, you know, as a first act in a first speech, do you think it's that important that it be unequivocal and unmistakable, their opposition to those things? Sure. I mean, I think it, it definitely helps, but No, the Cuban-American vote is not that big, even in Florida. It's just not that big. I mean, you shouldn't be losing by those margins. But what I'm saying is the better strategy is to overperform with other Latinos and let Cubans be Cubans and do what the Cubans are going to do. Got it. Because trying to go in there and convince them otherwise is going to give you very marginal results for the resources that you put in there. Should they do it? To your point, absolutely. 100% to do it, especially because it's true and that's where you are. So lead with that argument. But to think that you're somehow going to change the dynamics of the race um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me as a strategist. I think that there's far better uh, fields to teal. There are a lot of Puerto Ricans that have moved off of the island after Hurricane Maria that are much more amenable to the message. And the truth is it's much easier to go out and identify these newer voters in your state, make sure they're registered, give them a compelling message and turn them out than it is to try to convince Cubans uh, of any generation to switch sides from Republican to Democrat. Beto O'Rourke is considering running for governor. Uh, Democrats mm-hmm. also had difficulty in the border communities and underperformed there sizably. So if you're former Congressman O'Rourke, mm-hmm. what would be that game plan? Economics, economics, and economics. Uh, and that's my whole point is rather than trying to argue some of these peripheral issues like socialism to the Cubans, have a cohesive, aspirational, blue-collar, working-class agenda that speaks to what you're going to be doing for manufacturing industries, construction industries, and most importantly in Texas, the energy industry. You can't be viewed as the enemy of those industries and expect to win the hearts and minds and the votes of non-college-educated workers, which are increasingly brown people in this country. It's increasingly Latinos. And the Democratic Party, whether you believe it or not, is no longer the party of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They're no longer viewed by Latinos and frankly by whites as um, as advocates and fighters for the working class. That has to change if Democrats are going to get back into contention and put some of these states back into play. Otherwise, they risk of seeing Texas continue to be fool's gold and watch Florida slip further and further away from them. Mike, you don't think that Biden had a very convincing blue collar jobs, 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 economics, economics, economics focus? Well, it didn't work. Let, let's say let's say you're right. I would say it didn't work. And, and the reason why it didn't work is because I don't think that you could ask the average Latino voter what the top three economic priorities were for Joe Biden and have them answer what even any one or two of them are. So, so I don't, one is I don't think that they did. We can disagree on that. But even if they did, it certainly wasn't punching through. Donald Trump, say what you will. And look, there's something that people don't talk about a whole lot, but I think is very important. 
you did not hear him uh, having rallies saying, build a wall, chanting, build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. You didn't have him attacking Mexicans and Latinos the way he was in 2016 and 2018. You didn't have him talking about caravans coming in 2020. There's a reason for that is they were seeing in their polling that if they focused on economics, they could move the Latino voter model by three, four, five points and put some of those states back into play. That's exactly what they did. It worked. Now, they lost the white college-educated vote in large part because of what I and others were doing at the Lincoln Project. And so uh, that is that is why they lost. They were losing college-educated voters in their attempts to appeal to non-college-educated voters. And what they saw was that it was working for them. So if Biden and the Democrats want to get back into contention, they cannot rely on Republicans or Donald Trump or anybody else simply being racist as a message to drive out the turnout numbers they need or to get the percentages that they need. They have to respond to what Latinos have been telling us for 30 years is their top polling issue, and that is the economy. And it has not worked. And again, I don't, I don't think that they did do it. We may disagree on that, but even if they did, it certainly wasn't enough to have Latinos remember it and show up and vote and to start changing a very troubling voting pattern. So when you talk about public policy, that will express that concern for economics and you're Nikki Freed or Beto O'Rourke. I'm just trying to put as much meat on this bone as possible. Mm-hmm. What do you explicate, you know, in terms of substantiating that economic argument? What, as well, specifically, as- I can say, look, if, if you went into Texas and you're Beto and you started talking about working with the en- energy industry instead of, you know, working to kind of eliminate fossil fuels and petroleum. That's very tough for Democrats to do. But if you look at the Rio Grande, if you look at East Texas or West Texas, that's where a lot of those Latino workers are and where they're making $80,000, $100,000 a year. They hear, but they'll say that, they hear environmentalists say that, and they think, I'm going to be put out of work. I'll take it even further. We heard a lot about an infrastructure package. These are construction jobs, the construction trades, increasingly occupied by Latino faces that are building major infrastructure projects. Uh, you don't hear about that. I haven't, I haven't heard of that plan. Maybe with, with uh, Secretary Buttigieg, we'll start to hear more about that. That's a way you can actually put shovels in the ground and start building actual infrastructure that puts people to work. That's what Latinos are looking for. That's what they're looking for now. They're not looking for a, you know, a $15 minimum wage, although that's important. They're looking for middle-class jobs. And they're also not looking for monuments on the National Mall. Those are not issues that compel Latinos. That's unfortunately what I think a lot of Democratic consultants who are overwhelmingly white, as my good friend Chuck Rocha would tell you, uh, who worked for Bernie Sanders' campaign, who don't understand that the way these issues are communicated are, are culturally tone deaf. They need to be. Uh, they need to bring more brown faces into the table, actually, in the, on the political side to start having their own teams understand that um, – you know, in many ways, by just kind of, kind of, kind of patting their Latino efforts on the head, they're not doing them service. They're not doing them justice. And it explains why for 20 years, we have um, not had a proportionate share of Latino voters compared to other racial and ethnic groups. Final question, Mike, in Arizona and California, the situation is different. Can you explain the relationship of the Democratic Party to Latinos in those two states? Yeah, I can tell you exactly why they're different. And in fact, it's a great question to end on. California and Arizona uh, and Texas are overwhelmingly Mexican-American. 
the uh, 80% of the Latino population in this country is Mexican American. And that Southwest corridor is extraordinarily important for the Democratic Party. So the question is, why did California and Arizona Mexican Americans vote overwhelmingly for Joe Biden when Texas Mexican Americans did not? The answer uh, really comes down to the heightened politicization that those two states have gone through. Both California and Prop 187 uh, Pete Wilson and 20 years of anti-immigrant, anti-Latino rhetoric and policy proposals put forth by Republicans in this state. I'm in California. And in Arizona, you had Joe Arpaio and other uh, House resolutions that were extremely anti-immigrant, extreme attacks on the undocumented. You have not had that recent history in Texas. There's a longer legacy that was just as ugly. But for new voters and voters that have been here for the past 20 or 30 years, that experience has not been undertaken by Texans. So there's a couple things we can extricate from there. The first is that economic populism is an extraordinarily strong driver of politicization and motivation for Latino voters. Again, for 30 years, they've been telling us number one issue. There is one exception, and that exception is if you outright attack people for who they are racially and ethnically and have been doing it for many, many years, they will back off of those positions. And that's the tension. That's the tension that the Republican Party finds itself in as it tries to move away, when getting Latino voters anyway, tries to move away from the white grievance politics and towards an economic populist message that is working, especially with U.S.-born Hispanic males. And what the Democratic party faces, which is let's just rely on the Republicans' racism to help us consolidate the Latino vote. It's not working. It hits a certain point of diminishing returns. You're still going to win the Latino vote in places like Arizona, Texas, and California by very wide margins, but they're not wide enough to put states like Texas into play. Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Thank you so much for joining me today. Alex, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me.